Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. It's no secret that we don't mind a little song and dance with our murder and mayhem here at Dead for Filth, which is why this week I'm excited to welcome two guests who recently contributed to the horror musical canon. As the writer-director of Stage Fright, a slasher musical set at a theater camp, Jerome Sable created a cross-genre hit that garnered a lot of attention from genre fans. Previously, he created the celebrated short The Legend of Beaver Dam, which also crossed into musical horror territory. Today, Jerome is joined here on the show with Nicholas Mazurka, the editor of Stage Fright and writer of such shorts as Monstagram and Helicopters Land on the Pan Am Building. Beyond Stage Fright, this duo also collaborated on the ABCs of Death 2 segment, V is for Vacation. Please welcome to the show, Jerome Sable and Nicholas Mazurka. Nice. Thank you. Thanks and and I, I applaud your amount of uh, research. I think that actually is the total written about us uh, on the Internet. That's, I think that's uh, it. You've now yeah. completed everything. Well, you know, <laughs> when I have people come in, I want to like at least make sure I take the time to, to find out. Oh, that's very impressive. Very, I've never even seen helicopters land on the Pan Am. Building. I don't mean the phenomenon. I, I've definitely seen that, but uh, I haven't seen your short about well, that. Well, the funny story is that's a uh, that's a student short, but uh-huh. I think that shouldn't be on IMDb. But I think uh-huh. one of the actors like put it on himself to kind of inflate his uh, filmography. So uh, it's weird that that comes up, uh, but. Sure. Why not? I do think before we dig into the show, it's funny that you say that the idea of uh, people going in and changing IMDb when you're out like in the Midwest or somewhere that's not industry related. uh, IMDb sort of seems like this nebulous authority of the industry. Right. And what I don't think people realize is Wikipedia for movies. Yeah. And I frequently joke it's the inaccurate movie database. But I have a friend uh, who produces TV movies and this woman had been cast as a florist and she tried to add herself to the movie and accidentally changed the movie poster out to her like <laughs> headshot. And so whenever I think of, uh, you know, kind of IMDb grandeur, I think of this like middle-aged woman like smiling and her her taking over the entirety of a film page. That's amazing. That's good. Uh, so now I have you here, uh, and obviously, as I kind of hinted at at the intro, I, I want to dig into the idea of the crossover between the world of musical and the world of horror. But before we do that, why don't we start the show the same way I start every show with the same first question I ask every guest, and it is simply this. Why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. What's your attraction to the genre? Why do you think audiences love horror? But why horror? Well, my mom asks me this all the time, so... We actually have uh, thought about an answer to this, and we've discussed it actually quite a lot over the years. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with um, horror is uh, is one of those genres that uh, isn't as prude as other forms of of cinema. So it's it's a more unrestrained. It's a freer. Uh, you know what I mean? There's there's definitely in Hollywood. There's a prudishness, you know, to mm. movies where they basically feel restrained and uh, they, there's certain things they just will not do, but horror movies will do them. Well, and the audiences, too, have certain expectations. Uh, I think particularly American audiences have very, very particular expectations about what they think a certain movie in a certain genre should do. I remember when I was growing up, remember uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, the sort of controversy over people saying well it was a great movie but i didn't like all the flying you know why right. why are they flying right around? or people laughed when they saw it for the first time in right the theater. exactly and that movie while it's a good and beautiful movie is such a watered down version of the pure unadulterated weirdness 
of Shaw Brothers martial arts films. Right, right. And Flying is just the tip of the iceberg. Right. right. Anything goes in those movies. They they go from musical to martial arts to romantic comedy to detective story in the course of 30 minutes. And American audiences are just so sure that when they go to see a certain kind of movie, it's going to deliver in a certain kind of way. Right. But horror, I think, is the is the exception to that. Uh, because people are sort of saying, okay, the thing that is normally, uh, the thing that I would normally say must happen, now anything can happen as long as some goods are delivered to me that I expect, as long as somebody dies, as long as, you know, there's some sort of monstrous, but beyond that, I'm willing to go anywhere with this movie. Yeah, right. and if you believe movies should be more like dreams, horror it, it does a lot to come closer to that. Um, in terms of the way a horror movie might watch and certainly supernatural horror. Well, and I think what I really like about what you're both saying is it kind of brings us back to just the sheer power that this genre has when you think about it. There's there's a raw power in, in horror that seems to fall short in a lot of other genres because when done in, in I don't want to say the right way, but when done in a specific way, you can utilize horror to say things that maybe other genres fear to tread into. And uh, I, I like the idea that it's sort of like taking that heightened sense of things and just going for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. we like it too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you you mentioned specifically American audiences. I know Jerome's from Canada. Are you yeah, that, Canadian as that well? Yeah, that was the American who said that. Oh, Isn't yeah? that weird? Yeah. yeah. yeah we spent self- so much time together. I, he's now... I've become a self-hating American. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> and that, I, I don't know if that rubbed off from me or uh, what, what, what caused that. What well, you've gone it? the other way. You recently became a citizen. That's right. And I'm a self-loving American now. Yeah, yeah. You you gave you recited the Pledge of Allegiance while they were playing. Uh, what was it? Uh, I'm proud to be an American. At least like, I know I'm free. Right. Wait, is, <laughs> did, did this actually happen? Yeah, this actually happened. That's the song they play. It's very passive aggressive, right? Because wow. at least I know I'm free. <laughs> That's wild. At the very least. Um, <laughs> the other thing I didn't know, sorry if this is off uh, the beaten path. or, or We love off, off the beaten path. All right, so, well, yeah. I just never realized that the national anthem of this country actually ends in a question mark. Did you know that? You know, I feel like if I say I didn't, it's probably a bad thing. No, but I'm, not, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm not trying to put you on the spot. I'm saying yeah. I never realized that the whole the whole national anthem, the O, say, can you see? And the, you're basically asking, can you still see the flag? Because, you know, we didn't know if we won or lost. And there's a lot of bombs and the glare and the rocket's red flare. Right. We're not sure. And it's then, an unanswered question. It's an unanswered question because by the, by the home of the... What's the last word? Brave? Like, it should go up, isn't it? Yeah, everyone free. should go up in intonation when they sing it. Because right. it, a, it, is, it does end stadium. in a question yes. mark. And, and that's, that is the completion. Oh, so it's like the home of the brave? We're not sure, sure oh, we're if not you sure. can say, please tell me, can you see... Like the whether answer or not, yeah, the answer could have come back. There. No, the flag's gone. Yeah, it's, the flag's gone. We lost. Yeah, yeah. the yeah. anthem ends with a question mark. It's well, ambiguous. doesn't that make the national anthem seem like an existential crisis? Then, like, yeah. who are we? We're not real sure. Yeah. We're figuring it out. Did we win? Are we winning? <laughs> Who's to say? Honestly, so you're you grew up in Canada though. You're from Canada. Yeah. Period. Yes. Yeah. Uh, period. Not a question. No. Uh, I'm curious because I know that uh, for the world of entertainment, a lot of the films that go out around the world are exported from here. But there is sort of this kind of great tradition of Canadian horror movies as well. That's a good point. Um, Like Black Christmas, which many people consider to be the first slasher in the modern era, you know, post-Psycho, the first slasher in 1974. Black Christmas was a 
It was shot and filmed in uh, Toronto. And the Stephen Dorff classic, The Gate. The Gate, which most people still haven't seen. Um, but I'm just trying to think, yeah. Yeah, or uh, Funeral Home. Uh, was it Curtains? I uh, I think there's some like really, really great Canadian horror movies. Mm-hmm. And you're asking why? I was just curious. Like, oh, David you know, Cronenberg? David Cronenberg is Canadian? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Although he tries to play it down, as we were discussing, like in Videodrome. Right. They don't mention that Videodrome is shot in Toronto. They're right. like, they always use this weird euphemism. They're like, ah, in this major North American city. Right. Like, they're very insecure right. about it being could, Toronto. Could be Mexico City. <laughs> but they also seem to, I think if I recall, they allude that the signal, the Videodrome signal is coming from Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh, yeah. Right. That, yeah, right. That, that part is clear. And, yeah. and uh, yes, that makes sense in mm-hmm. a kind of... Uh, if you you know Pittsburgh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I yeah. lived in Pittsburgh, and I always just assumed it was a Romero hat tip in some way, but uh, yeah, could be. But uh, no, I was just wondering because did you grow up watching horror movies? Was this something that you? I yeah, mean, not, not specifically Canadian horror movies, but I was. <laughs> we only watch Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, I definitely. Uh, grew up on some of the staples and classics um and uh yeah i i would say not necessarily more or less than if i had grown up in uh in in uh the united states but um i don't know why there are canadian horror movies necessarily that perhaps because of canadian funding that they'll just green light anything you know every and, uh, canadian is funded i wasn't sure if you're aware of that <laughs> oh. but uh yeah. yeah when you turn 18 they yeah. they uh they hand you the funding <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, and I assume that you you grew up watching horror films as well. Is that something that you were interested in, or to some extent? Um, I was, uh, I, yeah, I was more like uh, I liked uh, samurai films. I liked Tarkovsky, mm-hmm. um, John Carpenter, right? John Carpenter, yes, was kind of my gateway drug into horror for sure. Escape from New York um, is very funny to watch it when you grow up in New York. Right. Um, because none of it is shot in New York, of no, course. It's, it's shot in a major North American city. Right, sure. St. Louis. <laughs> sure, exactly. Um, and, uh, but yeah, so that was kind of my gateway. And then, uh, and then really I we started getting more uh, into horror, or I did when we started working together. And, uh, and yeah. I think there's probably a parallel to be drawn between interest in uh, especially Escape from New York and a a love of kung fu samurai movies because there's something about Snake Plissken that's sort of like a wandering Ronin character anyway. And so many of those filmmakers of of, uh, that era, George Lucas, Roger Corman, uh, would pull from a lot of the Asian uh, movies that they were seeing that the world was not. So they, it was easy to to pick and borrow and steal. Although, yes, the you know, as other people would say then, but uh, like uh, Kurosawa is pulling from John Ford. I mean, right. he just loves John Ford. And uh, yeah, so there is a funny kind of sick, like uh, here and there and back again. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes, the, our notion of this of the Japanese samurai is really a, a kind of mirrored image of the cowboy right. from American Hollywood cinema uh, in a weird way. Uh, but uh, not to say that what he wasn't doing wasn't very original. He also kind of uh, uh, originated the martial arts film. Like that wasn't really happening right. until he did a film about judo. And that kind of set that off. So, yeah, it's interesting. Well, it's just always interesting to sort of look at the cyclical nature of art and how, especially, I think, in this era, I was talking about this when uh, Jan Gonzalez, who's a filmmaker from France, was on because uh, his movie was very heavily inspired by De Palma. And we were talking about how maybe at this point in our culture, it's almost impossible to make something that does not 
connect back to something else because we are so inundated hmm. with the culture that we are always interacting with. I don't know. So yeah, I could see how a cowboy would lead to a samurai and, and back again. It's something to think about. Points to ponder. <laughs> Uh, so here we are talking about uh, the films that you grew up watching and liking, and a question for both of you then would be, at what point do you take this interest in film and realize this is what I want to do? I, I'm not satisfied just being an active viewer. I want to work in this world. Well, first you have to be sort of bad at a lot of other things. <laughs> uh, a lot of other things. You tried Pope. That didn't work out. Pope did not. <laughs> no. Yeah. The smoke did not uh, rise from the chimney for me. <laughs> Yeah, you and were close though. I got real. I was yeah. Yeah, you were three bishops short. I think is the, uh, <laughs> the not exactly a job that even uh, actual popes have done very well though. I would say. <laughs> <That's> true. <laughs> yeah, don't be too hard on yourself. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so then you went to film school. Was that that was your path, right? So straight through Vatican City. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, Nick is being very modest. He's actually good at everything else as well. Uh, but no, I don't know. We met in film school. I, I personally had been doing a lot of theater uh, with Ellie Battalion, who is uh, the co-composer of all the music and lyrics uh, of Stage Fright and right. uh, Legend of Beaver Dam. Like a lot of stuff that we do, Ellie and I had been doing theater together and touring with our bizarre two-man shows. And uh, so at the time... Um, that Nick and I uh, were both in film school together and, and sort of shortly after that, I guess, was when um, Ellie and I wanted to work on a, a short film that incorporated uh, the musical comedy we had been working in the theater world with uh, the horror that I was um, sort of dabbling with in the film school world. And then that's how this short film, The Legend of Beaver Dam, came up and then uh, from there, ultimately, that springboarded into the feature that is stage fright. So, doing working in filmmaking, it was it was just another um, you know creative playground that uh, was uh, I don't want to say a logical extension, but just a, a a next step at the time anyway from doing a lot of plays and theatrical uh, shows. But making a short film that's a musical seems like. Uh, a tricky endeavor because that's that's a, a quite a bit in a short amount of time. Yeah, definitely. Um, it requires more rehearsal than um, average mm -hmm. filmmaking. Um, we also uh, like to record all of the vocals live on set, um, so we have a lot of you know uh, time and energy sp spent on playback operation and how that's going to work on set and how the actors are going to hear the music without us playing the music through a loudspeaker to taint the soundtrack. And uh, yeah, we, we put a lot of work into that um, and also into the casting to find people that are uh, double threats, triple threats, people can actually act and sing. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's more demanding for sure than, uh, than those straight talkies. <laughs> so I'm very fascinated by the idea, though, that you chose to just, you know, go for it, make a horror musical. And uh, because I, I don't know, even if you come from the world of theater and like horror movies, that it's something that people initially like, you know, think to do. And was this just like, were you always interested in this kind of cross section of genre? Or do you think that horror and musicals have uh, some sort of kinship that ma it makes sense? Uh, 
yes. I don't know if I was always interested in this cross genre. I can't tell or I, I'm not sure if I remember or don't remember. Um, although I can say it wasn't weird for me to to have it be mashed up like that. It's not weird for me. Well, one of the things you've said to me before that you feel that in some ways there's a, a, you're dealing with a kind of um, aggressive feeling you have towards some aspects of musical theater that uh, doing a horror movie in the context of musicals is a way to deal with some of your feelings of ambivalence about certain conventions of musical theater. Right. Well, there's that. Uh, but even before talking about that, I, I which we should talk about, but um, <laughs> I was just going to say, just based on what you're saying, Michael, the, the when people break, now that I'm thinking about it, because I haven't, we haven't, you know, I haven't thought about this explicitly in a while. Um, but yes, when someone breaks out into song in a musical, right. uh, typically it's because their emotion is at such a boiling point. They have no other way forward, no other way to express themselves but to start, you know, that right. just comes out. And uh, which we have a moment like that in the short where Danny, the little kid, is just trying to stop the monster and he just starts belting a note, but it's more of a, kind of a you know he's he's barfing the note forward it's <laughs> it's uh something that just comes out of it and i think in a horror movie that's also um what you like to see a kill comes out of the emotions having boiled up to a point where there's no other you know solution uh to the situation but violence um and uh so the idea is actually that it's it's not they're not too different at all um to explode into a musical number or into a uh, violent slashing of um, yeah, a character uh, doing violence onto another. To just come back to what uh, does that make sense? Uh, yeah, it makes to, total uh, sense. Uh, uh, or, well, I'm interested, I guess, in this idea that although you would think that they are very, very different ideas, the idea, like you know, the Tonys as of the time of the recording were last night. Yeah, and I think that probably the core audience of the Tonys is not the core audience of say Saw. Right, but. There is a heightened presentation right. to both forms of art right. that have that kind of like peak catharsis moment right. that I think when you look at it from the standpoint you did, it was just sort of like, well, why can the crescendo not also be the kill? And that's that's fascinating. Yeah. And there are, um, you know, Sweeney Todd is uh, one of my favorite plays. Mm -hmm. Not not the movie, but the play Sweeney Todd. Right, and um, yeah, that is you know a, a great example of when it just it all you know the feeling the revenge and the, uh, he's slashing the throat and uh, you know he's uh, but then also the comedy like that that play has it all right. as far as I'm concerned. I do like a play with a splash zone, by the way. Yeah, it's just a personal preference. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, and I like a splash with a play zone. <laughs> oh, God. The implications that has. Uh, so and you were saying about the aggression and the idea of uh, going against the grain of, of normal uh, musical theater convention. Yeah, I Nick is reminding me of, of yeah, well, that, that's, that's, that speaks to, in Stage Fright, right, the whole premise of the movie stage fright is there's a musical theater camp like uh, the one in uh that natalie portman went to uh stage door manor right uh you know a, a camp that focuses on training young performers in uh to be singers and dancers in the context of musical theater and at such a camp while they're trying to prepare for the summer musical uh there is someone at that camp 
who hates musicals more than anything. And this person, this masked uh, killer starts killing uh, people one by one that, you know, are trying to put on a play. That basic premise, which uh, some people find funny, um, is, yes, it's a it's an extreme uh, cinematization or extension of the concept of hating musicals. Right. Um, and yes, Ellie and I, Ellie, the, the co-composer, uh, and I, we have a love-hate relationship with musicals and always have. And so Stage Fright is like our love letter slash hate mail uh, letter to musicals. Um, so there, yeah, that's sort of where the basic premise comes from. Like, you know, we, we have that very conflicted uh, ambivalence. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I can see, especially as the film progresses, there is that sort of tongue in cheek. Like you knowingly are poking fun at how musicals are structured. And I love the idea that then uh, your killer sort of uh, is is kind of like this glam rock antithesis of a villain that we would see in one of these. Uh, now, I know uh, that uh, that making any movie is a Herculean effort. And you have this short that does very well on the festival circuit. It's a musical horror concept that it, people are paying attention to. And, and this is the natural evolution into stage fright. But when you go out and say, I now want to make a feature film that's a musical, that's a horror film, that's a slasher, were there challenges getting this movie made? Nope. No, like Nick said, you get the funding when you're 18. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, yeah, uh, definitely, definitely. Um, no, yeah, it's a hard sell. Um, and uh, we developed it with one company specifically here for a few months, but then um, it didn't uh, go forward with them uh, just based on studio interest. And then, yes, ultimately uh, we were able to collaborate with um, two great Canadian producers uh, who we also knew and were friends with. And um, they basically, yes, really went out on a limb to champion us in the project. Um, and uh, and then they put the financing together. Um, one of the first big pieces of financing did come from Telefilm Canada, um, which is what, you know, we were alluding to uh, jokingly. But Telephone Canada is a serious, uh, you know, government organization that allocates, you know, something like three hundred million dollars a year mm -hmm. uh, to Canadian filmmakers, and it's very competitive. They have a big system as far as like who gets what and how it's distributed, and uh, and uh, yeah, it's it's basically where the first first piece of the financing came from and then the rest was done with distribution deals and advanced sales and foreign territories and a lot of it yeah it was based on the hard work that these uh two producers Jonas Belpasht and Ari Lantos did um for under the banner at that time Serendipity Point Films out of Toronto um and uh but yeah we had to sell you know the movie to Telefilm we had to have meetings where we convinced them uh, and that this was a, a thing worth doing and right. uh, and so on and so forth to everyone else who put money in as well. Now did did you attend theater camp either of you was that or that was that just a I, I didn't attend theater camp proper although the, the summer camp the sleepaway camp that I did go to did have plays and uh, I right. think I was actually uh, Tony in West Side Story. <laughs> <laughs> of course, um, I was in. Uh, uh, in in school, I was in uh, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat yes. oh, as really. as Ruben, 
Yeah, uh, I don't know if you recall this. I try to block it from my mind. I like most of Andrew Lloyd Webber. I feel like should go in one of those Chernobyl lead-lined coffins, right. you know, where they pour concrete over it uh, and like leave it there for five hundred. You years. mean most of Andrew Lloyd Webber, the person? Like, what would you leave out of that coffin? His hand or his his his, his eyes? composing hand? Okay, <laughs> right. Just yeah, yeah, just to as a reminder to others, just to uh, could you remind the others now of what you sang as Ruben? Could you give us a little? Uh, well, wait, Ruben's one of the brothers, right? He, no, he's uh, yes, he's a brother of Joseph. And for some reason, Andrew Lloyd Webber decided that he should um, be like a Frenchman. Oh, and uh, as he, you do in, in old uh, in Jerusalem or wherever. Of right. course, of yeah, course. Yeah. And he has this very long song called Those Canaan Days where he sings it as if he's uh, walking down the boulevard lamenting days past right. in this absurd uh French accent, which I will not, I'm, I'm not going to do. a little bit. No, 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 no. I, no. Come on, come on. <laughs> come on. Come on. No. Let me twist your arm. No, 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 no. no. It shouldn't be on the public record. Uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's been buried. And uh, <laughs> like that short film I thought was buried and now is on IMDb. Uh, <laughs> I just changed the poster during this podcast, yeah. by the way. It's now my headshot. Oh, good, good. I didn't good. have headshots until just now. I... <laughs> I'm going to switch it to the woman who's the florist. Don't worry. Yeah, she's uh, she's always ready to take place of your of your, your post. Oh, you know what? I'm going to switch it to a picture of Andrew Lloyd Webber just for you. <laughs> Perfect. No, thank you. That should come up next to my name. There's one B in Webber, right? I always get that wrong. You know, I'm going to probably get some, some tweets about this one, but I don't know. <laughs> uh, I can't wait. Uh, no, it's I, I'm just interested because uh, obviously, you know, the show, uh, the, the show, because we're talking about theater, the movie opens with with uh, this large swath of, of kids arriving to this theater camp. And yeah. uh, I was very struck by the idea that um, even though there's a lot of comedy in that scene and it, it is uh really sort of, as we said, poking fun at some convention of, of musicals. You hit this authenticity that I think is really important and I think would be very interest, uh, like is of interest to listeners of this podcast, is the idea that these kids are going to this camp because it's a place where they can be their authentic selves. And they're very excited about right. this idea. And uh, I just really loved seeing that, especially with the idea of um, the intersection of queerness and horror, because that seems so represented in that scene. Yes, and and we could definitely speak about that. First of all, yes, thank you for um, uh, well, the way uh, you are one of very few people who've even seen this movie to begin with, uh, and uh, you speak about it like you remember it fondly. And uh, and and, uh, but I was just going to say um, that yes is something we're calling attention to in that opening musical number is they're finally here at this camp where they can be themselves, and I think that is part of it the idea that like here uh here you are at a camp where you can play dress up and what what we always talked about um is that the act of wearing a mask is not covering or masking some aspect of your personality but it's actually allowing you to unleash a more true or authentic part of your personality because you now feel safe to do so and so to the extent that that's what's going on in musical theater when you dress up as a character and now you can act and 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 feel free to let this part of you out um so maybe it is with the repressed uh psychopathic killer who wears a mask and now feels like he or she can finally do uh 
what uh, he or she wants. Well, I do like this idea. Uh, it's that it's the whole theory of put on a mask and become your truest self. And we uh, talk about, um, especially when we've had drag queens on on the show. One of the consistent through lines for them as as performers is that putting on the makeup and that like you know becoming that character a lot of times allows them this ability to be more them. But yeah, I and so I think that's really interesting. And I like that you played it for you know not only the students but then there's that dark mirror version of it which would then be the killer that's very fascinating yeah that was that was the idea anyway is uh yeah here's a place where you can uh you can be yourself whether that means singing dancing slashing (laughs) so nick i have to ask because a lot of times when we discuss the construct of a horror movie uh, it's, it comes down a lot to editing because there are certain beats that if it's changed just slightly, a scene that's scary could become very funny and vice versa. And uh, I wonder what that means in the context of a musical. When Is it more difficult cutting together musical sequences? Because uh, I always think about kill scenes, but now you also have this to contend with as well. It's an interesting question. Um <clears throat> I don't know if they're inherently more difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, I think th- in the end, it always just depends on what you were trying to achieve and how well things were going on that day when you were trying to shoot that thing and what you actually got um, versus what you wanted to get. And that's right. usually the level of difficulty. What's more difficult, I think, from an editorial perspective is looking at the big picture in terms of tone in terms of trying to uh, accomplish um, looking at the whole movie. This should be funny here. This should be scary here. And and basically to, to, to say this movie, uh, to basically make these decisions um, looking forward to the scenes that will come later right. and looking at all the scenes that came before it. And this is a problem that perhaps, uh, perhaps, perhaps uh, you and I have, I think, a lot because we tend to do projects that um, straddle various genres and finding a tone that makes sense of this for the audience is usually very difficult. Even right. if we have a fairly clear idea of what we're trying to do, uh, having it come out on the other side in that way, mm-hmm. uh, based on all the crazy stuff that happened in production, is is usually quite difficult. And with stage fright specifically, because yeah. that is more than average, even with our other projects, more tonally ambitious, and yes. it does have the mashup um, challenge. Right. Um, and it's not to say that we that we nailed it uh, masterfully at all. I think that's partially why the movie is divisive um, for people. Is that some people. Um, they they never necessarily tonally settle in uh, with the movie. Other people might have a higher tolerance um, for uh, what really is an eclectic um, borrowing from various genres uh, that's unfolding at rapid pace. Was there tonally like a uh, a mood board or an influence? But was there a film that you would look to and say this is kind of tonally what I wanted to go for? Or were you trying to affect something totally new? No. Well, the first thing is we wanted we definitely had the fu- what you even spoke about which. It made me think, oh, that's cool. This was actually working it for at least one person. Is the full commitment to both the musical theater component and the horror component? Like we believed in going all out in both, and sort of with the respect and reverence for the music and the singing and the musical theater performance and the structure right. of the musical, and also the horror. The, for the horror movie, the Giallo movies were a big reference point, and Dario Argento, you know, Deep Red and Opera. That movie that oh, right. uh, he uh, talk about 
influences. John Carpenter, you know, likes to say that Halloween and his vibe um, was inspired by Dario Argento and his Giallo films. And then, um, you know, uh, you could then say, and then we take inspiration from John Carpenter, uh, but also the Giallo films. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, that that was definitely on the mood board. Right. <laughs> and uh, as well as Andrew Lloyd Webber, um, it does actually play into not Joseph, but the Phantom of the Opera. Mm-hmm. Um, not not just the um, the 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 concept of the music, but the concept of the over the top romance production right. that Andrew Lloyd Webber was doing, based on remaking the Phantom of the Opera, the horror movie, the Lon Chaney horror movie right. from the twenties, um, and the concept that you know you could take a horror movie that in and of itself was a big inspiration. Well, and then so like kind of a full circle moment. And I was going to ask about her later, but what a great time. You have Minnie Driver in this movie. Mm-hmm. And Minnie Driver, uh, of course, in the film adaptation of Lloyd Webber's play. Yes. Uh, plays Carlotta, who yes. is the original diva of the opera before she gets upstaged. Yes. And driven away by the ghost. Yes. And essentially in this movie, she is the original diva who yes. is in driven away by the, the, the air quotes ghost. You are the best person to uh <laughs> have seen the movie for sure what was uh was that just a happy accident in casting her or did you specifically no uh that was not a happy accident that that was specific and that was definitely something that i brought up the first time i spoke with minnie uh on the first phone call mm-hmm. um where i was trying to attract her to the project and i was like look this is perfect. At that time, we already had Meatloaf. Meatloaf was in the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which right. is you know the most famous horror musical that exists um, of the two that exist. No, of the, <laughs> of the very few that exist. That is obviously the benchmark. Uh, then I was able to say to Minnie Driver, look, the same way that that's perfect with Meatloaf, it's also perfect with you because you were in Phantom and, yes, you're the diva. And uh, right. I, I, I did think it was perfect because of that. Now, since you mentioned Meatloaf and Rocky Horror, a question I was going to ask you both, uh, and you, you said it is sort of a small pocket universe of the horror movie musical, but do you have any particular favorites or any, you know, that... I mean... One that is less known that I'm sure uh, you and your listeners are more familiar with than the average um, moviegoer out there is Phantom of the Paradise. Mm, perfection. Yeah. 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 A lot of fans of that one. Um, and then it's just a question of, um, yeah, just other movies that you love. They don't, they don't have to have it all in one movie, you know? Right. Like there were so many references. I mean, the movie Opera by the Dario Argento movie that's a horror musical in that sense because there are long long sequences of the operatic performance um that's going on and it's uh you know um in in a sense that's not a a a thing people standardly think of as a horror musical but right. it certainly has musical performance um and slasher kills all in one movie that's fair yeah i love opera i'm a big fan yeah yeah uh, what are some others that you're thinking of that I'm forgetting right now? Well, of course, Rocky Horror, Phantom of the Paradise. I think about uh, Shock Treatment, which was the Rocky Horror follow-up that no one ever talks about. Uh, I'm a big rock and roll high school fan, but I don't mm-hmm. know if that's horror. I just think of it and as part of that drive-in Roger Corman experience yes, that happened. that was with the Ramones. Yeah. And, oh, the musical version of Reefer Madness that Showtime did was very much a horror movie. There's also, um, this is a uh, a a deep 
cut, um, but the sorority girls um, massacre, the sorority girls chainsaw massacre part two um, is features the killer. That's the driller killer. Oh, and, with the guitar. Uh, yeah. Oh, slumber yeah. party massacre. Slumber party. Yeah, I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Slumber party massacre. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sorry. I, I got no sleep at my slumber party last night. Um, <laughs> but. Um, Yes, and that was actually something I hadn't seen uh, until uh, one of the cinematographers we were interviewing for Stage Fright mentioned it to me. And uh, I, yeah, so you know what I'm talking about. No, it's, it's wild. I mean, but it came from that era, too, of uh, the 80s where they were doing a lot of cross-genre craziness. Yes. Um, and speaking of, like, and that's the theme of this episode, really, is this idea of crossing genres. And uh, you had mentioned this before, and I know it was something that you both kind of wanted to discuss. Uh you said that there was a little bit, uh, there's sometimes a divisive reaction to stage fright. And you've got this idea that horror movie fans are some of the most passionate, as well as musical fans are the most passionate. And you kind of jumble those together, and that can be probably uh, a very interesting experience as creators to to then take this out into the world. And podcasters are very passionate. There is, I don't know if you know this, but there's actually a uh, another queer horror podcast out there. That there are did a a, few. an episode <laughs> of Stage Fright. Oh yeah, yeah. It's uh, well, um, that's that's the amazing thing about this is that there are now two queer horror podcasts that have done a Stage Fright episode, and uh, you you seem to be more of. Uh, uh, someone who endorses the movie, and I just I don't want to make any assumptions, but uh, you seem very positive. This other podcast, not so much, not so much. <laughs> but I'm saying that that that's interesting um, and totally understandable. But I do think uh, you know what's interesting about the world of cult cinema that I'm always very fascinated by is it, there can be divisive opinions, but it's the movies that people keep talking about that have the lives. I'm very surprised that, yeah, this movie's five years old, you know? Right. And did you think that you would five years later still be talking about it? No. No. Not, not, I, no, that's why it's, it's, it is surprising. Right. Um, and there is something to be said, especially about this crossing of, of genres. Uh, it seems like when we think of, of cult musicals, whether it's something in the horror space, like a Rocky Horror or a Phantom of the Paradise, which are both very beloved by genre fans now. But I'm sure if you talk to Brian De Palma about his, like, oeuvre, Phantom of the Paradise did not necessarily land well when it first came out because mm -hmm. people didn't really know what to do with it. Right. And Rocky Horror took, like, a second before it got that midnight steam. Right. But there's something about these that uh, I find is very fascinating is when people find it, it's sort of like what the mission statement of the show is all about, that that finding the otherness and finding yourself in the movie and embracing that and loving it. The, the power of the horror movie musical for the people that it attracts to it is that they really, really want to just hold on to it. Because in a way, I think a lot of people don't feel like they've seen themselves represented in movies. And all of a sudden, here's a movie that maybe is a little bit other or maybe it's an outsider. And now they have something for them. And that's really cool to create a piece of art like that. No, it's 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 wonderful to. Yeah. To, if that if, if stage right fits with that, uh, with even some some small audience like that, then that's awesome. That's for, certainly. And and honestly, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, 
it's 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 people nick earlier in the podcast was talking about um you know certain movies from other cultures or maybe other eras that have a much higher wtf factor right you were talking about shaw brothers movies and but even in in uh in the united states movies in the 1930s also had different genres mashed in together right like the original um Mystery of the Wax Museum mm-hmm. right? is like a horror movie, then it's a comedy, then it's about this tenacious journalist hot on a trail of a case. It has the a logic of again. a dream in the way that right. our dreams kind of have these crazy tonal shifts and shifts in so-called genre. Um, the yeah, Movies before people had nailed down this commercial concept of a genre where audiences could sort of self-segregate into, oh, I like this or I like right. this. Uh, the, these movies were just, the, yes, they were free-flowing. Uh, and uh, the blockbuster a, in the 1930s was yes. just one big room, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I like too then blockbuster video. <laughs> the idea there's one left. Have you heard about this? There's no. like one freestanding blockbuster somewhere. It's probably really? in Portland because oh. that makes sense. But right. is it not just a recreation of a blockbuster video as a no? You know, it's Instagram like Instagram museum uh, place to take a picture. It's no, a real one? I think you can still rent videos there. Oh. From what I understand, uh, is that you know back in uh, in the era where you could. Frame franchise out companies like whoever bought this local blockbuster franchise just held on to it right. and like as the company started closing it was sort of like i don't know if they're getting new releases but they are still That's there pretty awesome yeah they're like a like a medieval monastery you know like preserving the knowledge of uh of like terrible 80s movies and uh through the war they're trying to weather the storm yeah and the, after the apocalypse the, uh, there will only be a blockbuster video to uh you know well and i think that's something that uh horror fans or just movie fans in general today they kind of miss that moment that happened during the 80s and into the early 90s where you would just go to the store mm-hmm. and you would look at those videos mm-hmm. on the shelf. I remember seeing covers of movies that mm-hmm. then I fantasized how crazy they like the uh, Fulci's Gates of Hell. I'd be like, this must be the scariest movie of all time because right. it's got a dead rotting guy's face on it or the mutilator when the cover art is far better than the mutilator. But, you know, it's yes. just uh, it, it was that kind of fantasy of like finding and discovering. Uh, and that's where movies, I think, like the, the Rocky Horrors and the Phantom of the Paradise, they found their people because mm-hmm. you're drawn to it. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always do ask, and I meant to earlier, when Shaw Brothers come up, because uh, a lot of times when we talk about the horror from around the world, Hammer gets mentioned a lot, and of course Toho in Japan. Uh, but Shaw Brothers doesn't get mentioned on the show quite as much as I would like. And I know that they sort of had like a, a, a dip into the world of supernatural and horror. Mm-hmm. Do you have any particular Shaw horror favorites? Oh, absolutely. Um, there's a film called The Boxer's Omen. That's- Yes, yeah. which you've you've seen, yeah. and uh, I we personally try to show this movie to as many people as possible, just because uh, we love it, mm-hmm. and that also has a stage fright like reaction yeah. from a lot of people. A lot of people are like, uh, oh, "Well, that was interesting," but then some people it like really gets into their brain, right. and uh, and that is just um, I I could watch that movie every day. It's so good. It's it's, it's just free. That movie is not uh, completely unrestrained. Completely unrestrained, um, but very funny, intentionally funny, and and also just goes and and yes, there's no. Uh, feeling of, uh, okay, well, now we have this debt to the audience, so we must do this. It's right. not afraid to go into crazy uh, avenues that you had no idea. And, and uh, yeah, it's it's a, yeah, it's I can't say enough about that film. I, I, I highly recommend it. But um, not all the Shaw Brothers films are like that. Some are very conventional. Some are quite right. boring. But they made so many 
and uh, and and uh, yeah, the audience was really willing. You get the sense to go places, um, and uh, yeah. No, it's interesting uh, thinking of that movie and thinking of stage fright, and and you're you're both of you having an affinity for that, and saying that there is sort of kind of a spiritual kinship. I can see it now, and that's not a movie that I would have necessarily thought of when thinking about your film. But uh, I love that. And I love that you you uh, keep bringing up this idea of dream logic, because when we talk about Dario Argento uh, and, and the the giallos of, of yesteryear, uh, most of those movies sort of hinged on the idea of of atmosphere first uh, before even story. And it worked. It was sort of like an amazing singular moment in time where the tone would shift with the mood. I, I uh, Whenever I think of Inferno, Mm-hmm. That movie's lead character changes every twenty minutes, and that's crazy, and yet it works. Uh, and I don't know. I just think that there's something there's something I guess musical about that idea too, like the shift in in fugues. I, you know, this is what happens. I get on a microphone and just start saying things. Uh, <laughs> so you were talking earlier about some of your other work, and I mentioned at the top of the show, uh, "Via's for Vacation" uh, in ABCs of Death Two, uh, and I, that. Tonally, speaking of tone, is is a world away from stage fright. Uh, and and tell me a little bit about that because it's something you both collaborated on. And what other uh, things are you looking to do next? What 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 would you like to to? It seems like you're very interested in trying new stuff. So I'm curious. I'm curious too how you saw that, or or uh, was that just because you had seen the whole ABCs of Death too? Or uh, I had or... seen ABCs of Death too. Oh, right? okay. Is it still on Netflix? I think it might still be. Um... But you saw it like when it was yeah, com- yeah. when it came out in the in the film festivals or um, right yeah that's awesome um, well I, yeah Vias for vacation I think came out of um, well there were a lot of things but some of it came out of a certain annoyance that we were uh, expected to produce something musical right like, like we once we once pitched a project to a uh, a, a network An that unnamed network shall remain nameless um, that um, they literally. Um, Afterwards, they were like, okay, and where's the singing? Like, we went through a whole 45-minute pitch where there was no singing. And they were like, so, but at what point do they sing? And we realized that they had this whole time not heard a word that we had said, but they had just been like, okay, and now they're going to And they were so disappointed at the end. They were so disappointed. They even said to us afterwards, like, but you guys, you you made a musical. You guys should just own that. You should own it. And we, you know. We said, well, we do own it technically, legally, we own it, but not everything we do is going to be a musical. Yeah, so I think Vias for Vacation, um, one of the uh, one of the feelings that we had was we wanted to do something, given the total freedom to do something, was to do something, go in a completely different direction. Right. That's why it's not musical, and it's also more, we were trying anyway to do something more disturbing, straight mm-hmm. horror, you know, and just the a concept of, oh, here's a daytime uh, horror the the nastiness of uh, what a boys trip uh, might uh, euphemistically gloss over when two guys say oh it was crazy it was crazy yada 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 and they're yada 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 and like to him <laughs> isn't that line in Seinfeld you just yada 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 the best part we're talking about yadaing the worst part right uh, and that that is what we wanted to show in vs for vacation what about the ugly nastiness of you know the morning after and uh, what if you got to see that oh well that's uh, that is definitely a world away from theater camp. 
Now, that's got to be frustrating, though, too, uh, because it is very much true of the industry that once you become known for something, they try and put you in a box. And uh, what artist wants a box? <laughs> in the context of a horror movie, if we can put people in that box and lock them in the box right. and, and then... lead line the box. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, Andrew wants the box. Andrew Lloyd. <laughs> this is the return of Lloyd Webber. It's uh, just when you thought he was gone, he's back. Right. <laughs> There's uh, his composing hand. Look out. There was a great short story uh, about this this man who was cutting off the hands of people so he could like so they would play the piano. And I'm trying to remember. Oh no, it was an R.L. Stein book. That, I'm sorry. It was a Goosebumps novel. Thank you. Uh, it just brought it all back. But it was about a, a villainous composer who was taking the hands of people. So there you go. You could uh, you could have had you could have the hands of Andrew Lloyd Webber. <laughs> is that that's you have to do the ads for the podcast? Is that one of the yes? That, yeah, there's just, <laughs> that's our uh, that's our um, our weekly sponsor, the hands of Andrew Lloyd Webber. Call now and we'll throw in an extra pinky finger for free. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what's what are you working on now? Is there anything you can tell me about? Or? Uh, yeah, well, it's, um, I'm not sure we're, are we allowed or not allowed to talk about it? We can speak in vague terms. We've we can be been, extremely vague. Yeah. We've been hired to adapt a graphic novel into a feature. Um, I suppose we can't mention exactly which one yet, but, uh, yeah, it is exciting for us because it's a straight up, uh, uh, I guess it's our first official adaptation gig. Um, so we, we did not write the graphic novel, so mm -hmm. uh, we've been hired as a writing team to do the screenplay for the feature. But we're very excited about it. It's, uh, it is right up our alley. Um, and we're also actually working on an animated half-hour television series, uh, which is in the ha half-hour adult animation comedy space. Oh, cool. Um, and yeah, there, although there is still violence and gore, this uh, tonally is, is closer to... Uh, Rick and Morty or BoJack Horseman, it's it's more of a political satire. Well, I find that cartoons tend to sometimes have the most grotesque violence, and uh, yeah. we, we kind of give it a... Because when you think of the Looney Tunes, I always think, you know, growing up, that was some of the most violent stuff I saw. Yes, and Tom and Jerry. Yeah. Uh, one thing I like to ask uh, before we head off into the night, because this is a show all about the worship of film... Uh, what have you guys seen lately, lately that you like or inspires you? It doesn't have to be horror per se, but you know, what's, what are you watching? Well, because we, we just saw, we just came out of, um, they re, uh, restored War and Peace. Well, you want to explain it? Nick had seen it in New York. Yeah, it's a, uh, uh, so there, there's a, there's a terrible, terrible adaptation of, uh, American adaptation of War and Peace. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, uh, and the, the, the Soviet, uh, someone in the Soviet Union saw this and was like, this is, they're, they're really, they've ruined this great national novel of ours. So they basically said, uh, we'll spare no expense and we're going to make it now. Right. And uh, they commissioned this uh, uh, guy who had just been an actor who went and had directed one film before to direct this uh, sweeping epic adaptation of the novel which is probably the most expensive movie that's ever been made there's yeah. no there's no official re record of how much money they spent on it but 
it's um, it's something like eight hundred million dollars. Wait, this was Soviet funded. Yes. Yeah. So yes. their money is better than the money you get from Canada. Yes, they saying. get okay. funded <laughs> when they're sixteen. That's, That's right. <laughs> That's right. Although there was so much jealousy that this guy had gotten this on even in the Soviet Union that he'd gotten this unprecedented opportunity that a lot of actors were like pressured to blacklist them, like not act in the movie because people couldn't believe that this guy had just gotten right. the golden ticket essentially to doing whatever he wanted, and he did do whatever he wanted. Yes. He has. Uh, just thousands of soldiers doing these crazy maneuvers. He has access to these- all the museums for all the costumes. They came from the actual museums and they're like, oh, Napoleonic War costumes. We have the actual. Here you go. <laughs> Here are the keys. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. It's an insane. It's an eight hour four part movie. And uh, but you- but having said that, that may make some people think it's boring. It's not. It's mm-hmm. it's, it's uh, never boring. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's like an amazing uh, uh, miniseries. It's it's just, it's very, very good there. They periodically re-release it. It's coming out on Blu-ray now. Um, I think like this month, it's it's very, very It's hard good. not to mention it because you say, what have you seen recently? And we right, just of course. did see it recently yeah. and everything else sort of pales in comparison. When you go and watch this, it really is epic. And like Nick is saying, the director doesn't hold back. He doesn't shoot the battle scenes in conventional ways. He doesn't shoot the love scenes or the, everything is done with this uh, wild, unrestrained, I should say, uh, right. creativity. Um, and it's, it's, yeah. it's not a horror movie or a musical. It's a historical epic, but uh, it is very creatively made. And uh, it's awesome. It's like if you gave Jodorowsky eight hundred million dollars to make a film about the Napoleonic Wars, that's the result. It's like a psychedelic epic. It's it's really quite amazing. Did you see the documentary about his Dune? Yes. Yes. Of course. And I often think about what that movie would have been because right. I'm a fan of, of Jodorowsky as a filmmaker. But also, there's something about the documentary as cool as it, they lay it all out. This is what it would have been. I kind of feel like this is probably film nerd blasphemy. I'm I'm maybe happy it wasn't made because it seems better that it exists in this nebulous place that we like can imagine how opulent. Like here's the planet where Pink Floyd is doing all the music, and over here is blah blah blah. It could have been disastrous. I I mean, just the idea of how crazy it could have been. It's true. It's true. I guess only Nicholas Winding Refn has seen the film, according to him, and he says it's awesome. And that guy can't be trusted. So. I agree with Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Who trusts that guy? But again, I think that what's really interesting is sort of like the through line of this discussion is sort of affecting tone and playing with tone too, because we talked about it with, with uh, both in the context of your movie, but in other movies, how uh, sometimes that's what what makes the adventure worth it. Is yes. Maybe not doing the traditional thing. Yes. Yes. Well, think of the ending of Holy Mountain. Doesn't Jodorowsky just totally take a 90 degree turn there at the end? Yeah. He's like, ha ha. (laughs) This is just a movie. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's amazing. He was also free. And uh, yeah, yeah, he's a jokester. A lot of a lot of horror filmmakers are are kind of pranksters, I think. Um, I know this is not necessarily uh, an amazing film, but, um, you know, uh, what is that one? The Human Centipede. Um, You know, a lot of people are like, oh my God, it's the grossest film. But clearly that filmmaker... Um, is enjoying the joke that he is playing on right. on the audience, and he's just trying to needle people. And uh, if that wasn't clear in part one, it becomes more clear in the sequel that he's he's kidding, he's kidding, you know. <laughs> well, and you know, hats off to anyone who can spin an audience's outrage into a trilogy, right? Because the idea, everyone complained per movie, right? 
But they don't make two more sequels if you're not going to watch it. Right. So, right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So fascinating. <laughs> well, I uh, am so glad that you both came today to talk to me a little bit about horror musicals and uh, kind of marrying the two. Uh, Do you end up getting when you said we're going to get tweets about that? Is that are people going to complain? Because I'd be very curious. How do I track that? Complain yeah, about the uh, complaints. Oh, I, I, I don't think that pe- I always joke about that, but our audience is very lovely. Usually, really? So, yeah, we haven't offended anyone yet. Uh, not. We'll find out. OK. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, honestly, I think this was a really great discussion and I'm very uh, grateful for you both taking time out of your, your day to come and talk to me about this, because uh, as I said before, we went in the air. Um, the marriage of horror and musicals has been something we've been talking about on Dead for Filth since our second episode and you both went off and made a movie that brings those worlds worlds together. And, uh, I think that just kind of the discussion about that and, and we talked about identity and the idea of, even though these movies are very much, this movie is very much a horror movie and a musical, it's sort of Buck's convention. And when you're a queer audience, Bucking convention is, is what we hold on to. So I think movies like that is very, uh, are very important. So thank you, truly. No, oh, thank, thank you. Our pleasure. Thank you. Um, where can people find you guys? Oof. Uh, as if little you... as possible, uh, <laughs> ideally. Um, well, no, I mean, we both have uh, Twitter feeds. I, 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 or no. Mine's a little oh. neglected. Yeah. You have a good Instagram. You, Nick sometimes takes pictures of the, the moon with his, um, you, you have a very strong zoom lens. Right? <laughs> That's I'm true. Serious. That's true. No, I'm yeah. serious. I don't know. Yeah. But where uh, else can they find us? <laughs> I didn't know that. There are some local bars and uh I, I don't know. Uh Honestly, <laughs> the best answer, uh, a local bar. Yeah. Because <laughs> I mean, some people are very engaged in their social media or not. I actually had one guest that just gave their PlayStation handle and was like, play video games with me and I was like I would never do that but that's Has awesome. anyone made um like guitar hero for um sort of you know musical theater where you have to get all of the words in a Gilbert and Sullivan song like uh Pirates of Penzance or you This lose? is the million dollar idea that you need to go out and someone someone's on it Okay do you mind deleting that last part <laughs> <laughs> Don't You have to you have to rush uh you have to rush to Sony uh before Lloyd Bubber gets there cuz now he's got a vengeance That's right. debt Uh-oh. to pay he's, <laughs> and he's running fast on his composer legs <laughs> Uh, Jerome, Nick, it was so great to have you both on today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Michael Verratti. This has been Dead for Filth. Yours always in glam and gore. Good night and good luck. Dead for Filth is a Reverie original podcast, executive produced by Aaliyah J. Daniels, LaShawn McGee, Chris Rodriguez, and Damian Pelliccione. The show is produced by Drew Phillips and sound engineered and edited by Josh Perkins. Download the Reverie app and use the code FILTH for 25% off your first three months.